Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. As these last two months in May and June have been the months that we celebrate mothers and fathers, I want to get you back into our archives and give you two segments from two different shows that are really intended to help parents. Now, this applies whether you're a parent or not, because if you're leading people, you have parents who are working for you. The first is with Josh Loves, who's been an advocate for fathers' rights and has talked about how that increases productivity in the workplace, as well as makes for stronger families. There's a big bias there that we all need to be paying attention to, and one that I think is gonna help create a better working and family environment for everyone. The second half is for parents, and for that matter, anyone, who's trying to juggle the balances between work and non-work time. And for this one, I'm going back to Stu Friedman's work on how do you focus on what really matters most. Stu has got some great advice for how to think about what will make a difference. Hope you enjoy the show. Far too often, we talk about the challenge of being a working mother. However, I was with a group of senior leaders and a senior male client in front of a room of women when asked about what it's like to be what he thought about being a working mother. His response was, it's not a woman's issue. It's a parent issue. We're going to talk about the biases we have around fatherhood and career. And I want to break open those myths. I want to talk about the culture. I want to talk about alliances. And I want to talk about how managers can help and what kind of policies are going to make a difference. I have to say, I personally care about this one because I think this is a big issue for all of us to get on top of. And even if you don't have kids, you're leading people who do have kids. So being attuned to that is going to help you in the end of the day. So my guest today is Josh Loves. Josh is an entrepreneur, a former CNN and NPR journalist, and he's the leading global expert on modern fathers in the workplace. He's the author of an award-winning book, All In, How Our Work-First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. The United Nations named him a global champion of gender equality. The Financial Times named him one of the world's top 10 male feminists. He's testified in Congress, and he's a leading business consultant and keynote speaker and his TEDx talk talks about his own story of overcoming some insurmountable obstacles and getting the rewards for it. Josh stepped into the global spotlight by taking legal action against Time Warner, which was CNN's parent company, for their unfair parental leave so that he could care for his premature daughter and sick wife and succeeded with that, I might add. So Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So tell us just a little bit about what happened and why you decided to take on Time Warner. Sure. Yeah. So I was on uh, CNN, you know, on air and online. I was doing all this fact checking and fact checking politicians and pundits. And that's when I, at the same time, was becoming a dad. I had kids and I started to do some reporting on fathers and families and discovered that there are all these myths about that. So I was covering 
dads and families on the air. And that's when there was this big switcheroo where suddenly I was the dad in the news. And the story there was that when my wife was pregnant with our third child, we realized that I would be needed at home to do caregiving after our uh, child was born. And I was already reporting about the fact that this is normal. Dads do caregiving too. <laughs> Unfortunately, the the policies that are in place all over the country are very often tilted to make it much harder for men to be caregivers. And what I was under at CNN, which was part of Time Warner, was totally nonsensical and yet sadly typical. Under those policies, anyone could get 10 paid weeks after having a kid, except a guy who got his wife pregnant. <laughs> Anyone except dad in a traditional scenario could get 10 paid weeks. So the short version is that when I discovered this, I, I went to the, I found out the protocol. I went to the company in secret and I said, Hey, can we address this? They asked me to put it in writing and uh, said they would look into it. And months went by with no answer. And I was told it went all the way to the top that all the branches of, of Time Warner were weighing in on it. And then my daughter was born prematurely in an emergency. And I still couldn't get an answer even from the hospital. I got like me could only get two weeks. So after about two weeks, I asked work, am I coming back now or am I getting the 10 weeks? And that's when they said, no, I, I could not have the 10 paid weeks. So I ended up taking legal action and it got a ton of attention. And later on, CNN Time Warner made the choice to revolutionize their policies, making it better for men and women. So you know what? Change can happen. Right. Thank heavens. We need to make some changes here. Josh, you know, there's a lot when we talk about gender or equality, we often compare to ourselves to the Nordic countries for a host of reasons. You know, one, they piloted having 50 percent of women on the boards and a variety of other such practices. But one of the things that I have seen about those cultures is that the fathers are much more involved in caretaking. So if you were to walk down the streets of, let's say, Stockholm, it would not be uncommon to see dads collecting together to pick kids up at school. That's still an atypical phenomenon, let's say, in the U.S. or in the U.K. or in many parts of Europe. Is that your experience as well, that the Nordics are headed on this one in terms of a mindset? They are. And the biggest reason is that they implemented something called that's what we're going to refer to as daddy quotas. So it's important to understand the big picture here all over the world when paternity leave is available it's usually a matter of the family choosing whether the woman takes the time or the man takes the time and because of stigmas against men as caregivers um and, and all of these pressures, including financial pressures, the vast majority of the time when it's optional like that, the women take the time and the men don't because um, men have been punished, fired, demoted for daring to take paternity leave. What the Nordic countries did was something different. They came up with these blocks of time that are substantial, like three months long, that is use it or lose it time for dads. So there is time for moms, and there's also use it or lose it time for dads. You cannot transfer it to the mom. And it reversed the stigmas because there you look like an idiot if you don't take it. Who's going to turn down three months of paid leave to care for their kid? And as a result, dads started taking the time off, doing caregiving. And now the next generations have grown up seeing moms and dads as potential equal caregivers and, and equal in the workforce. So it's not like they have, you know, achieved perfection. There are still some challenges there, but they are light years ahead of us because they made a policy that tackled the stigmas. 
Well, because it's so common there, one of the phenomena I find interesting in watching those countries is that it's not the dad standing around the schoolyard with a bunch of moms and awkwardly going, okay, how do I fit in here? And this is weird and everybody making not fun jokes about it accordingly or whatever they say, but it's dads also there. So you have a friend that you can walk to the school with to pick up the kids and come back home with and stand around with. It doesn't feel quite as isolating because it's become more normal. So I think there's something to that one as well. You know, our comfort level makes a difference. So, so important. Absolutely. In fact, you know, we have a cultural fear of men as caregivers, which we need to address. And it, every dad in my book, <laughs> they, all of us, we've all had experiences in which we are the one dad at the playground and the moms kind of close off their circle because they're like, why is a man here? Or, you know, this one guy went to pick up his kid at school and someone called the school saying there was a pedophile, like Jeez. meaning every dad has this story. And in cultures in which you get used to seeing men as caregivers, you're much less likely to isolate them and find them scary. And instead, you normalize them, which is what we need to do for equality to be achieved. Right. So you mentioned fear. So one of the fears is that the dad is going to get isolated or reported to the police or something version of that one. Are there other fears that dads have that we need to be aware of? So that's the thing that really happened. It's other people being afraid of men is what I was referring to. Right. But yes, men. So Men, very many men are aware of specific things that have happened. So, for example, there is a guy in my book who took paternity leave to care for his wife who had become very sick and mentally ill while pregnant and their new child. And he had been a rock star at work. But when he went back to work, they demoted him and ended up firing him because and they admitted in the deposition they had traditional views of men. And there are all kinds of cases like that. So there is a legitimate fear of taking leave or of um, seeking a flexible schedule to do caregiving because you do can get punished in the workplace by people who believe that men should not be home or that men aren't really doing anything at home, that it's all just a big joke. So there's that kind of fear. And yes, there are sure there are other fears as well, including, you know, the concerns that you bring up, this idea that if you are doing this caregiving, you could end up feeling isolated. This is why there are terrific groups like the City Dad groups now that get groups of men, including full-time at-home men, together or during the pandemic together virtually for supportive activities in which they have fun together. And, and it's a sign of community. And that has been really instrumental in helping change the culture. That's great. Those are all fabulous ideas. A few years ago, more than five, I did a piece of research with a company and we did an analysis. We did uh, focus groups with men and with women at the same levels, all high potentials, sort of pretty much match sets, if you will. And one of the things we were asking was about the family duties, family responsibilities, time outside of work. And we were asking women what they wanted, what they wish they had. And because we were doing parallel, we asked the men what they wanted, what they wish we'd had. And coming out of that data, a substantial number of people, it was uniformly reported from the men that they wish they could have the time off, that they would take a more flexible schedule if they felt that it wasn't going to penalize, be penalizing their career. And they were, you know, like 80% certain that they would get penalized for it. So therefore they weren't going to take it. Yeah. And I think that's the phenomenon you're talking about right here. 
Yeah. In fact, we have some research now. I, I partner with a brand, Dove Men Plus Care, and we've done research around this. And there's some an international survey we did that found that 85% of men said they would do anything to have more time at home, be more involved at home. But when asked what's preventing men from doing this, both women and men give the same answers. There's the attitudes of colleagues and, and bosses. And there's also the financial concerns. You know, there there is still a wage gap and men are likely to make more money and families can't afford to lose the higher salary. So there's a, the financial concern as well. But yes, you see this all the time. In fact, EY, Ernst & Young, found that in the United States, men are even more likely than women to switch jobs or careers or move to a different state or take a pay cut or move to a different country, all to have more time with their families. But what I have found consistently is that men are less likely to tell our bosses that that's why we're switching jobs. That that's why we're leaving the company. So this is costing companies a lot of money because they're losing not just great women when men can't be caregivers. Women are much more likely to drop out of the workforce because they can't split that with their husbands. But also men are dropping out of their jobs and taking new jobs at places that do support them as fathers. And I go over this in all my talks and consulting, but the, the cost of replacing an employee is extremely expensive. So giving them the flexibility they need is actually a way of saving money. So yes, it doesn't surprise me at all. And, and your research backs that up too, that men are looking for this. Unfortunately, it's more in the shadows. It's more of a secret. Very few people realize that men are looking for this as well. Right. All right. Now I want to tackle a, a little more controversial topic than I typically do on my podcast, but <laughs> I'm still going to go for it. <laughs> I find some of the barriers to men being more involved caregivers actually comes from the wives and mothers, mm-hmm. where as women, we will define so much of our identity around being a mother and being the one that the kids go to all the time. And we're not quite as comfortable in turning over some of those responsibilities to dads or not as comfortable turning them over to dads to do it dad's way as opposed to mom's way. Now, is that just my experience or do you see that as well? Oh, that's absolutely the case. I have a chapter in my book about, I call it, male privilege and female gatekeeping. And these are things that we can all fall into because of the way that we're raised. You know, a lot of us were raised in that culture that that suggests that dads are incapable or lazy or clueless about kids. Um, so there, you can fall into a mindset as a man in which you can say, well, you change the diaper. That's more your thing. But just as big a problem is female gatekeeping. That's when women say to the husband, no, 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 you doing it wrong. You're changing the baby wrong. You're going to break the baby. No, don't do it. And often, sometimes it's the wife, but often it's the wife's mom, the mother-in-law who who grew up in a generation in which men weren't expected to do these things. And the mother-in-law comes along and says, no, 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 you're going to do it all wrong. Let me take care of this. I got this. And men are made to feel irrelevant. And you kind of got to insert yourself and say, no, 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 no. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take. And some of it, I, you know, look, a baby grows for nine months or more inside the mom. So of course, you know, in these biological cases, of course, she's going to feel a protectiveness that there's something that she needs to do. But it's after the birth, especially that that's a time that we as dads can say, no, 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 it's both of us now. We got this together. And aside from breastfeeding, men can do everything. And lots of women pump and lots of right. families. Right. So we have to, yes, we do have to push against gatekeeping in order to make equality happen. I have I have a couple stories on this one that I tell often to audiences, but I'm going to give you one of them because I just think it's funny and it's so relevant here for this gatekeeping idea. Senior woman, three kids at home, um, middle school ish age. So, you know, 
eight and up, one of them a boy. And, you know, as typical of kids that age, they're constantly leaving something at home. So she and her husband have agreed that he will take the morning routine and he'll make sure that the kids are off to school with all the appropriate belongings that they need for the day. She's at work for the day. First day in this arrangement, school calls her and says, do you know what your son was wearing this morning? Her response is, apparently it's fairly cold and he doesn't have a jacket. So, of course, she leaves work, runs home, gets the jacket, takes it to school, calls her husband and just reams him out. You were supposed to do this, blah, 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 blah. And he says, hold on a minute. I told him three times to get his jacket. He won't forget it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So a very different approach, as in let the kid kind of suffer the consequences for what he wasn't doing as he should have been done. And he won't die and it will be OK and it will be easier tomorrow. Whereas her approach was to be protective, both valid, very different. And if that conversation isn't happening, then it's way too easy to attribute that dads can't do the job when, in fact, maybe they just do it a little differently. You're exactly right. In fact, when I was the uh, the resident dad on this TV show we had on HLN, my segments were called Dads Do It Differently. And, you know, look, I mean, there's there's infinite diversity, right? Like sometimes you'll find a mom with a certain style or a dad with a certain style. But more often than not, you do find, and there's research around this too, absolutely, men do that. In fact, I literally have that happen with my son who often refuses to to put on a jacket. And then he gets cold when when we're there. And I say, hey, you know, learn your lesson. I'm, I'm not no, you can't have my code. I told, I told you. So yes, I do recognize that that, that can happen. And the idea that like, you know, she didn't want to instead pause and think, well, maybe I, that, you know, could be fueled by anyone having a busy day, but it can also be fueled by this assumption that men don't know what we're doing as caregivers. Right. Okay. So we've danced around this in terms of the myths and you talk a lot about the myths. So we've talked about the, the fact that we fear men as caregivers. We've talked about women as gatekeepers. What are the other kind of myths out there that we need to be attuned to? Well, the biggest one is that men are lazy and uninvolved at home, that we come home and kick up our feet and watch sports and and wait while our wives do everything. Um, And this is fueled, unfortunately, often by mainstream media, too, that don't read data right. You know, uh, part of what my background is and what made me very unusual in journalism is that I learned how to dig into raw data and methodologies and see what surveys actually show instead of just what a news release about a survey claims. So men and women put in equal hours on behalf of our families. There's extensive time use data from the American Time Use Survey. And there's similar data around the world that looks into how time is used. And this idea that men are getting more relaxation time or leisure time is just false. There are three forms of work. There's this paid work, unpaid work, and childcare. And when you put those three things together, men and women are doing equal amounts. The difference is that women are doing more of it at home and men are doing more of it at work. And sometimes people try to push this idea of the lazy man by saying, even when men and women both work full time, the mom does still so much more at home. But that's a failure to understand the data. So working full time means working 35 hours for pay. So there are lots of cases in which you have a man working 55 hours for pay and a woman working 35 hours for pay. And those difference of 20 hours, she's not relaxing. She's home doing a lot of unpaid work and childcare. So, yes, they're both working, quote unquote, full time. 
And yes, technically more of her hours are at home, but that doesn't mean that he's sitting around doing nothing. So statistically, there's no block of time in which men are sitting around, you know, relaxing and and women aren't. And this, this is very important because what I keep finding through research is that bosses believe the stereotype. They genuinely believe if you let a man take paternity leave, then he will go home and do nothing. So it's just a crock. So keep him at the office and make him keep working. Women, they're needed at home, but men not so much. So it fuels that that kind of backward system. And there are other as well. One of the big things that I've been talking about over the past year is the myth about black fathers. The myth that black fathers are, are absent in the majority of black fathers, by far the majority of black fathers live with their children. And they are on average the most involved. So, you know, so many of the stereotypes that people hear are just false. And I break them all down in my website, joshlevs.com. You can just click on dad facts and you'll see all the data. That's interesting. Uh, that one catches me surprise, surprise, because the media is certainly full of the myth that black fathers are less likely to be living with their kids. And it's interesting that you say the majority live with their kids. But also, unfortunately, it's not part of the journalistic process, and it should be. You know, news agencies simply see an announcement from any agent, any organization that sounds official, <laughs> and they say, well, this study found blah, 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 but they don't, they're not trained or knowledgeable enough to go and find out about the sample sizes and the information. So, you know, I'm constantly contacting news agencies to point out bad data that they have about dads. And fortunately, the good ones run run correction. Oh, that's good. That's really good to hear. So that means we do need to read that small type at the bottom that says, here's a correction from last week or yesterday or whatever the case is. Yes. All right. So let's take this in the realm of managers, whether it's a small team or a big team, whether you run the organization, whether you're just a part of the management structure without, you know, we've said so many times on this podcast, especially in the last year, that as a manager, if you're not showing that you care about the whole person, then you're not going to get the best out of that employee. You're not going to get loyalty. You're not going to get engagement or inspiration or creativity or any of the stuff that you would like to have that you have to care about more than just the output that somebody produces for you. So clearly that's the case. I'm assuming that parenthood, whether it's for women or for men, is kind of no different. So what should managers be thinking about and doing in this context, particularly for dads? So the first thing to understand is that all of the workplace options that exist for flexibility and leave should be treated um, in a gender. In fact, after my legal case, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, sent out guidance to all businesses saying that when it comes to leave after a birth, certainly women get time officially for physical recovery, but that time to care for a child, a caregiving leave has to be clearly distinguished from physical recovery leave and caregiving leave has to be gender neutral. Um, And managers need to understand that they actually benefit from encouraging men to take that leave. This is a big jump that they don't understand. You know, a lot of managers assume, hey, work is better when I have my employees around. So if they insist on taking the leave available, fine. But, and often they they even say, no, just don't take it. But the irony is, 
that they actually do better. Businesses do better when they encourage men to take the leave because when you take that leave, you spend uh, your time focused at home doing the caregiving and you come back more refreshed and focused and you are much more likely to stay with the business long term. So this is one company in my book. They have a small business, less than 20 employees, and they decided to give them all a few months for caregiving leave. And I asked why. And they said in the long run, it saves them money. In the long run, it prevents them from having to go find new employees. So managers need to have that kind of relationship to the flexibility, to the leave, to make sure that men and women feel comfortable taking it. You know, we're not we're not some giant company that can offer to pay you for months and months while you're off. But what can we do? What can we work out that will be good for you? Can we help you find subsidized childcare? Can we give you a flexible schedule? What would work? And so many people have told me that if their managers would have a conversation like that with them, it would have revolutionized their experience. But this idea that people are afraid to have these conversations because they think they're not supposed to or because they don't want to say something offensive, like all of that is ridiculous. Openly communicating with employees about what they need and what works for them and what works for you and finding that middle ground, that is one of the best, smartest things you can do to run a business well. Okay, great. Well, I certainly speak to lots of managers, male and female managers, by the way, who, you know, the stress is high, the workload is ridiculously uh, understaffed for just about everybody everywhere. And having somebody be out puts a heavy burden on the entire team. So I understand a lot of managers want to discourage people being out, not because they're trying to discourage parenting or any of those sort of important life events, but they're just worried about how to handle the workload. And I think that mental framework gets in their way. And as you're saying, then Josh, and the data will back this up, is that what they're doing is focused on the short-term pain versus the long-term gain of keeping that employee engaged and productive and staying with the business for longer than the six months it takes to come back and then find another job. That's so well said. Oh, I love how you said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I want to quote you on that. That's a perfect way to put it. And to emphasize, this is about everyone, like whether you have kids or not, you know, what I support is paid family leave. And that's for anyone to care for a family member who needs caregiving, a child at any age, an elderly parent, you know, a spouse sick, especially that with COVID. I mean, everyone at some point will use paid family leave because it, it also includes leave to recover yourself after an illness. So this is something that everyone can stand for and everyone can support. And when we have it, businesses do better. So yes, it's exact. you're exactly right. It's about putting the long-term gain ahead of any short-term pain that comes from someone. My guest today is Josh Loves. As I've said, he's an entrepreneur, a former CNN and NBR journalist, as you've heard, and now a global expert on modern, modern fathers in the workplace. The book, All In, How Our Work-First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Fix It Together. And as you've just heard, there's a lot of information on his website, joshlevs.com. And the point is that we've got lots of myths about dads. We're not used to seeing them, and so we get suspicious of seeing the only dad on the playground. Or we fear at work as a manager that if I send a dad home for parental leave or any other kind of family caregive, then they're going to be sitting around and not 
actually do anything. And we have missed that fathers are not putting as many hours in in the kind of work that gets done in life, meaning paid, unpaid, and caring work. The data doesn't support that and hasn't supported that for a number of years. And we've also talked about the fact that sometimes women are gatekeepers who discourage fathers from taking a more active role. We talked about the fact that companies that will provide equal leave opportunity for family issues, whether you have children or not, are the ones that are going to do better at the end because you are buying loyalty and long-term commitment and investment and engagement and inspiration and all of that good stuff that makes people dig a little bit deeper to help a company do a little bit better. Thanks, Josh. And we'll be right back with our second segment featuring Stu Freeman and how you think about the integration between work and non-work. That is, how do you make time for the things that really matter in your life? If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. Now, how many times do people ask you how you're doing and you respond, it's crazy? I think everyone has been feeling that for a while and is feeling it more so in the last couple of years. So today, I want to talk about how we begin to make choices on the things that matter most to us and how we think about our work and non-work lives and integrate them, create a sense of harmony between those two. My guest today, I'm excited to welcome is Stu Friedman. Stu's an organizational psychologist who works at Wharton School of Business, and he's been on the faculty there since 1984. He helped found or founded Wharton's leadership program and its work-life integration project. 
Working Mother chose him as one of America's 25 most influential men for improving the lives of working parents. And the Families and Work Institute honored him with its Work Life Legacy Award. He's written two bestsellers, Leading the Life You Want is one, and Total Leadership is the second. And the second one also describes the Total Leadership Program that they now use worldwide. His latest book is Parents Who Lead. Now, Stu has won numerous teaching awards and is in high demand as both an instructor, a speaker, a consultant, a coach, a workshop leader, and in terms of policy. He hosts the Sirius XM Wharton Business Radio Show and podcast, Work and Life. And it's my pleasure to welcome to the show. Stu, it's good to have you. Wanda, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You've been talking about work and life and the integration of the two for ages. Why is this topic so important Mm -hmm. to you? As a graduate student in the early 80s at the University of Michigan, I studied leadership development, but I was also very much interested in the relationship between work and the rest of life. But it wasn't until my first son was born, a few years after that, 1987, that my world was, was just transformed. And I could not get out of my head the question, what am I going to do to make the world a safe one for Gabriel to grow up in? And at the time, I was doing research on leadership development and how leaders grow uh, in all different settings, particularly in big companies. And I was doing consulting with companies on their talent management systems. But this new question that was viscerally very much alive for me. Uh, I I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And when I returned to the Wharton classroom after some time away and and asked the students, what are you going to do to ensure that the next generation, not of talent, but of people, is going to be healthy and strong? And... This was 1987, and as you may imagine, there was there was quite a lot of surprise that I was asking this question, uh, and some people were quite annoyed, frankly, and they said to me things like, "Well, this is a business school. Why are we talking about families? So why are you talking about this topic?" <laughs> so those are some of the things that I heard, but I also heard people say to me, "Wow, I'm so glad you're." bringing this up because I've been thinking about this and nobody's talking about it here at school uh, or elsewhere. Uh, I've got questions. And finally, one person said to me, when I asked, what are you going to do as future business leaders to change the way we think about and act in terms of how we organize our organizations, our companies, our lives, to be able to nourish the next generation? One student said, well, you're the professor. You tell us. And of course, I was simply asking, you know, the annoying question, which is what I have made a career out of doing, asking annoying questions, provoking people. Uh, but that question then changed everything for me. And I realized I needed to start to shift, to pivot in terms of my research focus and and use what I had been trained to do, and that was to study uh, a, a problem and try to find answers to it, and that's that's what led me on this on this path to to try to find answers to the question: How do people integrate the different parts of their lives in a way that works for all of them? Yeah, 
Boy, okay, so I, I'm dying to ask you, how do you integrate the different parts in your life? I think that's what you talk about in your book, Total Leadership, and in the program that you run on Total Leadership. So tell me about what that looks like. What did you find about how do you integrate your life, the different parts of your life? Sure. Yeah. Well, we uh, this is back in 1991, I started the Wharton Work Life Integration Project, which was dedicated to finding the answers to those questions. And at the same time, I, I also founded the Wharton Leadership Program. So I was doing mm-hmm. both of those in parallel uh, at Wharton and also in organizations that were interested in both how to grow leaders and how to find harmony or integration among the different parts of life. Now, notice that I didn't use the term balance, and we can get back to that as to why. Uh, but one of the things that we did in the early 90s and throughout the 90s was to go out into the field and to find people in a variety of different settings who were good at this, who who were identified by other people as having kind of figured it out, how to find harmony or integration among the different parts of life. And what we found was that they had some principles that they followed in each their own idiosyncratic ways, but that, that that were consistent across these people. And we articulated those in um, in workshops. We brought them to life in workshops that we started doing. And those principles were pretty simple. To be real, which means to clarify what matters most to you. People who are good at this, they know what they stand for. They know their values. They know where they've come from, and they have some idea of, what, of where they're going, a sense of purpose. And they work to continually clarify that with themselves, with people around them. So that's the first thing, to be real. The second piece was to be whole, which means simply to recognize and respect the fact that you're not just a work person, you're not just a family person, you're not just a community person, you're not just a private person and and citizen, but you're all those things. And what happens in one part affects what happens in the other part, generally speaking. So to recognize and respect the whole means to... See who matters most to you in the different parts of your life and identify them as to why they're important and how what they need and expect from you and what you need and expect from them fits with your values, your vision of the leader you are becoming, the person you are becoming, the person capable of creating the world in a better way way in some in some form or fashion because that's what leaders do right they see reality they try to make it better bringing others along with them so the first principle know what matters second principle know who matters and then learn to figure out what they really care about by building trust engaging in conversation which you discover what they truly want not what you think they want so that was another piece of it that people are good at who are good at integrating the different parts of life they're constantly learning from the people around them what their mutual needs and interests are and adjusting 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 and the third thing that they do and I'll bring it to a close here is to be innovative so to be real, to be whole, and to be innovative, continually experimenting with new ways of getting things done that work not just for their family lives, not just for their business lives, not just for their you know their communities and friends, not just for their own personal health and well-being, but for all the different parts of their lives. They're always experimenting, and they're trying to make things better in ways that work for the people around them as well as for themselves. 
and we developed a set of tools for people to bring those principles to life and to cultivate those skills. Um, and I wrote about that in one of the first articles uh, in this field in the Harvard Business Review in 1998, and that article is called Work and Life, the End of the Zero-Sum Game. Mm-hmm. Because fundamentally, what these folks do and what truly anyone can learn how to do is to see beyond the trade-off or balance mentality and to look instead for opportunities to create value to win in all the different parts of life. Yeah, that's an important component to win in all the different parts of life. Okay, so now before I go back to that one, I want to come back um, and just summarize for everybody because there are three really important parts there. One is this notion of being real, which means I know what matters to me. I know what my values are. I know what my purpose is. I know where I'm going. And in effect, I guess what I'm trying to achieve. And I think you also said there's a continual reevaluation of that. So I'm making mm-hmm. sure that it's current and fresh and alive. So be real. And the second is to be whole, to recognize that I am. Because it changes, parts. right? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say you, you reevaluate it because what matters to you changes as you grow, as life changes. Yeah. Right. It's not static. Yeah, exactly. So to be real, the values and the purpose and the where I'm going and reevaluate that. The second thing is to be whole, to recognize that I am many different people in work and in life outside of work. Um, actually, I have to pause on that one. I hate this work-life dichotomy. Work is a part of life. I want to talk about work and non-work and, and those how those mm-hmm. fit together. But to recognize and respect that. And I love what you said there is that the most important thing is to understand who matters to you and why, and what you need and expect from mm-hmm. that person, and how that fits your sense of who you are, your real side. But plus, you have these deep conversations with people that lets you understand what it is they really want and expect from you, mm-hmm. and how do you accommodate mm-hmm. that mutual needs, stuff we don't do well in any circumstance, let alone when we're trying to lead and do all the rest of it. And you said adjust. It's adjust and adjust and adjust. And then the third part you said is innovate. New ways to get things done that make all of this stuff work in harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the essence of it. Okay. Easy said, and I can imagine not so easy to do. So I want to come back to this notion you said that you think we should stop talking about balance. And because we see work and life as a zero-sum game, say a little bit more about what you mean by that. Why is it not a zero-sum game? Well, you know, the term balance suggests that um, if one part of your life is going to win, the other parts are going to lose. And what we have found is that with a shift in mindset, and it's not necessarily a radical overhaul, but just a different way of looking at things, by taking seriously the notion that you operate in different spheres and in different roles with different responsibilities, and some of those are in conflict, right? Uh, Your kids want you to be there, and your boss wants you to be there. All right, that's a conflict. But sometimes there's compatibility that you might not see. Well, your your company wants you to make new products that are going to actually make life better for other people. And indeed, that's what you want your grandchildren to be thinking about when they think of you. Mm -hmm. So 
those are just simple examples, but there are ways in which there's compatibility and there are ways in which there's conflict. Most people assume conflict because of this dastardly term balance, which has in your head the seesaw or the scales, right? One wins, the other parts lose. And what we have found is through a systematic uh, look at who you are as a person, where do you come, where do you come from, what are your values, where are you going, what's your purpose, who matters to you in the different parts of your life and what they need and expect of you and what you need to expect from them and really thinking through where those conflicts are and where there is compatibility among the different parts of your life. And then to imagine what can I adjust, what can I change that's going to make things better, not just for me, not just for my family, not just for my friends and my community, not just for my business, my work, but for all four. What kinds of things could I do that would have a positive impact on all the different parts of my life? And many of these effects are indirect. Like if I take care of myself better, I'm going to be uh, a healthier father around longer to take care of my family. I'll be less of a jerk to my colleagues you know, that I'm working with. And I'll probably have an opportunity to spend more time in the community or with my friends. So that's just one simple example of how impact in one domain, a change in one part of your life, say just yourself, uh, can have a spillover or a ripple effect into the other parts. So the problem with balance is that you just assume you've got to make sacrifices all the time. And it's better to think in terms of harmony or integration among the different parts because you put on a different set of lenses and you ask a different question. And the question is, what can I do based on what I know about what matters to me and the people around me? What can I do that's going to make things better for me and for them? And when you take that approach, you're thinking like a leader because you're thinking about what's the reality of the world that I'm facing? How can I make it better for us? And you're much more likely to find ways to make change happen, even if they're small changes. If you take this proactive, intentional view as to what is possible for me in terms of producing what I call four-way win, change yeah. that's good in all the different parts. And my experience having now taught this and brought it to industries uh, worldwide for the last 20 years and to our students in various settings is that just about everybody can come up with something. Yeah. If you ask them that question, it's just that they don't get asked that question very often. Yeah. I was just today uh, talking with somebody who's thinking about taking on a much larger role in his organization and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of debating, um, you know, I don't want to totally sacrifice every part of my life in some of the same ways that you're talking here about the different aspects of your life, um, family or friends mm -hmm. or physical or whole range of factors. And asking the question of, can I do this job without completely sacrificing? Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that when you start asking that question, you're on the wrong path for leading. Because it sets you up as a resentful leader. It also makes you ineffective. Because if you're making that much sacrifice, you're not going to be that good at what you're doing, I think. Now, so I like your notion of changing that to a sense of harmony. What can we do that's going to make it better for all of us? All the four parts mm -hmm. in my life, the four sets of people mm -hmm. in my life. Okay? 
Yeah. Um, it, it starts, again, with uh, being as clear as you possibly can be about what you are here to do. What, why are you doing what you're doing? And my experience is that with, with clients and students at every age range you can imagine, from high school students to retirees, that that's, that's one of the hardest questions to ask and answer honestly. Why really are you doing what you're doing? What do you care about most? And what's your purpose? What, what do you want to leave behind? So it starts with getting as clear as you possibly can be about that. And we have a series of exercises that help people to do this, um, most of which were developed when we first launched this program. I invented it when I was the head of leadership development at Ford Motor Company. So 20 years ago, uh, I was asked by the CEO of Ford as he was trying to reinvent the culture of that 100-year-old iconic manufacturing global powerhouse. Uh, I was one of the 30 executive-level people he brought in to try to change the culture, and I was head of leadership development globally. That's where total leadership came to life because our charge was we're going to change how we think about leadership here, and we want to invest in the whole person. So we developed this program there and then have been refining it ever since. And among the things that we ask people to do are tell the story of the two or three or four episodes that have shaped your life history, that have determined who you are in terms of your values and your beliefs. Describe a day 15 years from now, from the beginning of the day to the end, in terms of what you're doing, who you're doing it with, and why you're doing it, your vision of the future. Um, a number of other pieces of work that help people to identify what they really care about and to share that with other people, to get feedback on it from peers, to give feedback to others who are doing it. So all this work is much richer if it's done in a peer-to-peer coaching scenario. And that's where it really begins uh, and, and, and is quite liberating for most people to clearly articulate that which matters most to them. It gives them a sense of uh, purpose that is unmuddied, and that opens up pathways for how to see the future uh, and why they're doing what they're doing in ways that are good for them and good for the people around them. But, of course, that's just the starting point. When you take seriously the question, who really matters? Why do they matter? What do they really need? What do I really need from them? And how do I talk to each one of those people? Let's say it's eight or nine or ten, your most inner circle of the most important people in your work or career, your home or family, your community, and you practice and prepare for How am I going to talk to these people about what really matters to them and to me? And you discover from doing that in a concentrated period of time, everyone gains from this. Most people are quite nervous about it because they're afraid of what they're going to hear, but they come out of those conversations learning more about what other people really need, not what they were imagining. And what they find is that they have a lot more love and support surrounding them than they thought. And a lot more freedom to do things in ways that are good, not just for them, but for the other people in their lives. And that's where they become less stressed and more open to different ways of doing things that don't necessarily require the kinds of sacrifices that they feared they had to make because they were making assumptions about what other people needed from them. So well, having a better take on the real world that they're operating in as leaders in their lives makes it actually easier 
for most people at all levels of their uh, of, of their career of, of an organization and, and in their careers to find new ways of getting things done that don't necessarily require sacrifice. And they experiment with those, have a kind of experimenter's mindset of continually innovating, trying new ways of getting things done, but that they're based in the reality of what's going to work for other people, not just you. That opens up people to the possibilities for trying new things uh, with, a, with a little more risk. Reminds me of a lawyer that I worked with a number of years ago who um, had just taken on, again, a big leadership role in the law firm on a global basis and was struggling with getting Mm -hmm. a sense of maintaining his life. And, you know, when you ask him, what is it you're most missing? His answer was, I'm misreading The Economist. Because that's what gave me conversation topics with my clients that kept me up to date and so on. And, you know, we just then brainstormed if that's what's missing, how do you get it back in? What are the simple things that you can do? Can you come in Wednesday at 10 o'clock instead of at 8 o'clock and read The Economist for a couple of hours? I mean, what's the little things that are going to make that possible? I think when you do the exercises you're talking about, Stu, what happens is you get so focused on the pieces that you really need to adjust, not on the big picture mm-hmm. of how I boil the ocean and make everything perfect. And that's what I think yeah, is, is so compelling. Yeah, it becomes much more practical. Okay. It becomes right. doable. And you're also thinking about the impact of a change that you're making, not just on one part of your life, but on all the different parts. So how by reading The Economist do I become a better father? Yeah. Is a question you might ask. Or, excuse me, a better friend. Um, or just feel better about myself as well as a better resource for my client. Right. So what we have people do is systematically practice training their minds to think in terms of four-way wins. How by taking this action do I have an impact that's good in the other parts of my life? And most people don't ask themselves that question. But when you do ask yourself a question, you start to see how what you're doing here in this part of your life actually does ripple out into the other parts. And that, sh- that really shifts your mindset into someone who is thinking like a leader in all the different parts of their lives. And you feel less guilty and less afraid. Great. Great. I can imagine this is a pretty powerful program. At this point, Stu and I turn the conversation from his work with leaders to his work with parents. And he tells the story that this work about parenting really brought him back to his original motivation, which was to try to help kids because they're the unseen stakeholders at work. They're affected by families, by their parents' working experiences in powerful ways. And that's what he turns his attention to now. We reimagine the total leadership approach at as, as applied to people raising children together, parenting partnerships, we call them. And, you know, most of these are married couples, but not all. You know, there's all kinds of partnerships that people form to raise children. And we have them do a similar but different set of activities that engage them in, first, on their own, identifying their values, uh, what's important, why, their vision. And then we had them share that with each other and come up with a common vision for their collective future. Mm. And for many people, that was enough. Like, wow, this is you know, something we've never done before, and it really opens our eyes to what we should be doing right now. Let's do it. 
Okay. Let's make the changes that are so obvious once we start to articulate what our shared future should be. But we cautioned patients and worked with them through in our laboratory for well over a year how to talk to their critical stakeholders in all the different parts of their lives, but starting with their kids. Hmm. So why are you a parent? Why does that matter to you? Uh, how does it affect your work? How does it affect how you feel about yourself and your role in society? What do children need? And now think about each one of your children. What did they need from you mm-hmm. as a mother, as a father? And then get on the same page with your partner. What do you think mm-hmm. this child needs? What do you think this child needs? All right. How do we now talk to that child in an age-appropriate way about what they really need and what we really need from them. And so these stakeholder dialogues, let's call them, these conversations with kids were for many people quite illuminating as they started to discover things about their kids that they just didn't know before in terms of what they saw when they looked up to mom and dad or mom and mom or whoever it was. And that, that was really eye-opening. Uh, for them, like one one single dad reported how um, you know, one of his core values was about learning, and how he wanted to be a continual learner. He wanted to transmit that to his to his son, and so they're talking. I think the son maybe was four or five or so. Uh, <clears throat> they're talking about learning, and and the son says, "You know, there's something that I really want to learn how to do, Dad." That says, "Well, what is that?" He said, I want to learn how to vacuum. <laughs> what? You want to what? <laughs> and so, I mean, that's just something he never knew. Uh, and, and, you know, all kinds of wonderful things came out of that. So it starts there. They then undertake these conversations with other key people in their lives, like their bosses and direct reports and others at work, extended family and community. They do a stakeholder analysis and conversations, and then they do the third part, being innovative, but they're doing it together. So they're looking for family four-way wins, things that they can do collectively to make things better for all the members of their family, as well as for their careers and their communities and for themselves personally. And that's what we describe in Parents Who Lead. Well, Stu, I think that what excites me the most is, um, is multiple components. One is this renewed sense in yourself as a person and as a parent, what is it that I value? What is it that I'm here to do? What is it that I'm trying to achieve? So there's a sense of the values that matter to me. It's a sense of the purpose and it's a sense of the vision of where we want to go. And as parents creating a co-vision and as a worker or as just a person creating your own sense around that one. And then two, understanding who matters and having the courage to have conversations with those people about what they expect and want from you as well as you to say what you expect and want from them. And I think it's that dialogue, that conversation, as scary as it is, is part of the secret in being able to mobilize people and bring them along. And it's also part of what makes families productive. And then to get creative once you're freed by your own expectations. Stu, inspirational for me and I trust for everybody who's here listening. My guest today, Stu Friedman, the book we've been talking about is Parents Who Lead is the most recent one and the former one that lays out the four-way win model is called Total Leadership. Stu, thank you for being a guest. 
Thanks so much for having me, Wanda. It's been a real pleasure. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 